250 million Americans are eligible to vote for the president. But in a few days, just 250,000 Iowans will cast the first real votes of the 2020 election and perhaps, perhaps catapult their chosen candidate to the White House. Hello, I'm John Prideau, and this is episode two of Checks and Balance, a new podcast from The Economist about the 2020 elections and the road to power in America. I'm The Economist's US editor, and every week, from now until election day in November, we'll take one theme that's shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, it's the Iowa caucuses. How much do they matter? On Monday night, the process of winnowing the Democratic field down to just one candidate begins for real. Will this year's caucus winner be etched into history as the 46th president? Or will he or she linger in the memory only as a trivial pursuit question? I've been in Iowa this week with all this in mind, as has Checks and Balance regular and Economist Washington correspondent John Fasman. John, where are you? I am in in the Even Hotel in downtown Omaha, Nebraska, which is just over the river from Council Bluffs. I saw Joe Biden there last night. I'm going to try to catch Mike Pence there this afternoon, and then I'm seeing Donald Trump tonight in Des Moines. Who else have you seen this week? I saw Elizabeth Warren on Sunday. I went to a canvas party for Sanders on Monday. And then Tuesday, I saw Kurt Meyer, who's a Democratic county chairman in three rural counties in northern Iowa. Charlotte, you're hunkered in Manhattan. Does all this talk of Iowa make you miss Chicago and the plains of the Midwest? It really does. I'm particularly jealous of John in Omaha. I love Nebraska and Omaha in particular, so I'm very jealous. Well, I'm in Chicago today, and I'm delighted to say that alongside me is Chicago resident and frequent Iowa visitor, The Economist Midwest correspondent, Adam Roberts. Adam, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Just enjoyed our trip around Iowa with you. We saw Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden, and we talked to a lot of caucus goers and Democratic Party chairmen and that sort of thing. So, briefly, I find that every four years I learn the rules of the Iowa caucuses, and in the intervening time, I forget them. So, for people who are like me, please will you remind us, Adam how this thing works. There's a good reason to forget, because it's pretty unusual. Other than when I was a correspondent in Africa and saw people voting by queuing up in lines in Uganda, no one in the rest of the world votes this way. This is what you do in Iowa and a few other states, and it's about caucusing in a school gymnasium, in a community hall. Everyone does it on the same night, Monday evening. They get there at 7 o'clock. And basically, you're standing in the biggest huddle that you can form. So if you like Joe Biden, you go and stand with a bunch of other Joe Biden supporters and you see if your, your group is bigger than the Elizabeth Warren group at the other end of the hall. And someone goes around and counts up the numbers of people in the groups and works out who's the biggest winner. And this is repeated across around 1,700 different sites across Iowa at the same time on Monday night. And just to complicate matters a bit, there have been some rule changes this time. The rules are slightly different how they were in 2016. Can you take us through those and how they might affect things? Yeah, as if it wasn't enough of a mess last time around, they've made it even more complicated now. So some of this was because they were trying to avoid the spat that happened with Bernie Sanders supporters being unhappy with how it was run. So three big changes really to look for this time. The three big changes are, first of all, there are fewer caucuses. You know, other states that used to do them are dropping them. So... Uh, There's only three states that are really doing proper caucuses now. Iowa's one of them. Last time around, there were 14. 
So everyone's shifting to a primary system, and that's where you just put a cross on a bit of paper and stick it in a ballot box. Everyone's used to that. So we're shifting away from caucuses, mostly, and that may hurt the sort of candidates who have the most passionate supporters, the sort of people who are ready to come out for a, a long evening on, on a Monday night. So the fewer caucuses, that's the first change. Second change is that the calendar is, is front-loaded. We've got a lot more states that are having their primaries and their caucuses early. And so California is the big one. It used to be much later in the process. It's coming forward. It's going to be on Super Tuesday already in March. So already within a few weeks of it kicking off on Monday night, we're going to have 60% of the delegates chosen by about mid-March. So that's a change from last time around. And the third big change is superdelegates, the unpledged delegates, the ones who are sent by states to the national convention where they're going to pick the nominee, and they're not stuck to voting for any one candidate. They can choose for themselves. Now, last time around, they had a lot more influence because they could vote in the first round. This time, they've been told they're not going to be part of the process at the beginning in Milwaukee at the national convention. They're going to be brought in later. So that makes them less influential than they were last time. So the front-loading of the calendar perhaps makes Iowa even more important than it normally is. John Fasman, can you give us a sense of what it's like to caucus? I cannot because I've never been there, but I had the terrific good luck when I was in Cedar Rapids at the Warren Rally to run into Liz Lenz, who is a columnist for the Cedar Rapids Gazette. She has written a couple of books on religion, and she described to me how a caucus works. Not a lot of people actually go out to caucus in 2008 was our highest caucus numbers with only 15% of registered voters. It's a long night, and if you've got babies or people you need to take care of or jobs, it's tough. So have you caucused before? Oh, yes. What's the experience like? It's nuts. So I, um, in my capacity as a writer, I went and covered the Republican primary twice, which is very civilized and nice and uh, calm. And then I went to the Democratic uh, caucus in 2016, and it is a madhouse. You know, you're just like there in this little room with all your neighbors. You know, you have to like get into groups. And so I was caucusing for Hillary and uh, Bernie supporters came over and were just like shouting at us. Iowans were not shouters, but something about the caucus gets our, gets people a little, gets them a little crazy, John. It's just a little nuts. (laughs) Liz raises a really interesting point about the 2016 caucuses. So you heard her describe the passion of Bernie voters and also just how few Iowans actually turn up for these things. This time around, how do you see uh, those numbers shaping up, Vasman, in Iowa? Are we going to see hordes of of Bernie supporters coming out with that same really strong zeal that they've had in elections past? Or are other candidates mobilizing more people to show up to caucuses so that there might be a higher turnout this time around? Well, from what I've seen, the Sanders and Warren campaigns really have the strongest organizational game. And Sanders' supporters seem especially enthusiastic. And that's what caucuses reward, right? They reward the enthusiasm of smaller groups of supporters because they are so difficult and so inaccessible. I think that particularly harms Joe Biden, who is generally quite popular, but his supporters tend to skew older, and older voters are often less likely to show up at caucuses. What I have been hearing is that he's been trying to work out deals with other campaigns about where their supporters go after the viability test. So for instance, if someone like Amy Klomachar pulls in 12% of a precinct, she is deemed non-viable, he wants those supporters. So he may pick some up that way. 
Um, but I think the caucuses themselves reward the most passionate, engaged, and organized campaigns. And that looks like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Can I just jump in there? Because John, John Prado and I were in, in northern Iowa a couple of days ago. We were in a place called Independence in, in Iowa, in Buchanan County. And we were chatting to the head of the Democratic Party there. And he was telling us that in preparing for five caucuses that are going to happen that night in the town, he's expecting a 50% increase in turnout compared with 2016. He's been told to get ready for congestion for large numbers of people pouring out. So the party, at least, thinks that there's excitement and there's a lot of people coming. And and that, as you say, that might hurt Biden, I guess, because he was also telling us that in the Midwest, the older folk are maybe more likely to turn out in November, where they can vote during right. the day, rather than come out for the for the caucus where it's a bit past their bedtime. There's also a lot of speculation about how the weather might affect Biden's turnout. What I've read, at least, suggests that the weather forecast is not too terrible. It's not going to be too chilly in Iowa, by Iowan standards at least. And that's good for Biden voters because they don't particularly like to go out in three feet of snow. Can you remind us, uh, one of you three, of the history of this, how important Iowa is, how much momentum you actually get out of Iowa? The recent history is pretty clear, especially on the Democratic side, that if you go back the last 20, 30 years, other than Bill Clinton, and that was a special case back in 92, every single nominee has come first in Iowa. So the recent record uh, for all the, all the races we can look back on in our living memory, really, is if you don't come first in Iowa, you don't become the nominee. That's on the Democratic side. I mean, the Republicans have a bit of a reputation for nominating some wacko birds in Iowa who then go on to um, fall out the nest and not do so well. Sorry, that's a terrible metaphor, but I'm going to own it. Yeah. <laughs> um, on the Democratic side, they do. The Iowa and caucuses goes, do have a better record of picking the winner, as Adam says. That said, you know, these are not laws of physics. In politics, they're patterns that have held for a while and they hold until they break. So it's not a sure thing, clearly, that whoever comes out top in the Democratic Iowa caucuses will be the nominee. But as Adam says, you know, they've had an unbroken streak for quite a while now. And since they began, they kicked off in the early 70s. The, the rule of thumb has been you need to get in the top three. You know, there are three tickets out of Iowa, is the well-worn phrase, first class, business class and economy class. You really need first class ticket to get out. Maybe if it's a messy field or you've got some other advantage down the line, you can get away with a business class or an economy class ticket. If you're not in the top three, history says you're in big trouble. All right. Thanks, everyone. This is Checks and Balance from Economist Radio. This week, we're in the Midwest asking how much Iowa matters on the road to winning the White House. In 1976, across our land, a new beginning is underway, led by a man whose roots are founded in the American tradition. Iowa's reputation as a political launchpad dates back to Jimmy Carter's presidential run. He was a little-known southern governor at the start of the campaign. My folks have been farmers in Georgia for more than 200 years. Everybody in the family loved each other. We had to work together. Uh, we didn't recognize hardships. We thought we were having a great life, and I think we probably were. But beating expectations in the caucus catapulted him into the headlines and all the way to the White House. Protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. The Economist later wrote, In all logic, the Iowa caucuses deserve their pre-1976 obscurity. But they're regarded by politicians and journalists as important, and so they are. 
But at the same time as Iowa's caucuses were becoming more important, a crisis was brewing that would upend Iowan politics, reshaping its role as a battleground state. In 1979, the Soviet Union launches a major provocation, invading Afghanistan. Meanwhile, in the US, high interest rates are squeezing credit and hurting land values. The burden of this falls on farmers and rural banks, who rely on a constant flow of loans and repayments. Afghanistan and Iowa collide. I have decided to halt or to reduce exports to the Soviet Union in three areas that are particularly important to them. President Carter halts grain shipments to Soviet countries. Food becomes a weapon in the Cold War for the first time. The embargo pushes many farmers who had been exporting their grain over the brink. Farm debt reaches an all-time high. Farm income is collapsing. The impact of all this on Iowa is profound. The rural population declines, along with the numbers of people involved in farming. By 1983, Iowa was averaging 500 public farm auctions per month. The crisis scarred rural Iowans. Skepticism of the federal government deepened, and people began to realise that the stakes of farm policy went beyond jobs and money to questions of survival for a whole way of life. In Iowa politics, the impact was felt on both sides of the aisle. Democrats began to build a progressive base in the growing cities. Rural communities became more conservative, caught up in the evangelical political revolution. The farmers are going broke, we're increasing the deficits. It was a divide summed up by the state's two senators, who served side by side for decades and together. Uh, simply driving our farmers off the farms. Democrat Tom Harkin, who would build a liberal base in the cities of Des Moines and Dubuque. All my farmers and small business people and everybody all over the Midwest and in any part of rural America tell me is we've got to decrease the deficits and increase farm income. And his friend and political opposite, Chuck Grassley. He's frugal, blunt, straight-talking. One of us. The archetype of a solid religious conservative, pro-life, pro-gun, anti-big government. I'm Chuck Grassley for Iowa, and I approve this message. As Iowa has hardened into more and more progressive urban and more and more conservative rural voting blocs, the fallout from the farm crisis has bled into presidential politics. The establishment is once again telling us to fall in line and vote for their backroom hand-picked moderate candidates. The caucuses provide big opportunities for Republican evangelicals like Rick Santorum and Mike Huckabee, and for progressive Democrats too. On this January night, at this defining moment in history, you have done what the cynics said we couldn't do. And that divide between conservative rural folk and progressive cities still defines the Iowa caucuses today. John Fasman, let's start with you. Is Iowa too tough on moderate Democrats? I think to the extent that you conflate a moderate candidate with one who is temperamentally perhaps not that exciting, that's true. And I think that may redound to harm Biden this year, just like it harmed Mitt Romney in 2012 when he lost to Rick Santorum, who was far more of a sort of fire-breathing social conservative. But I don't think there's a real inherent, as you say, laws of politics are not laws of physics. And I don't think there's a, there's a reason that a moderate candidate couldn't excite her supporters and organize a, a strong ground game. But it has been the case for the past several cycles that the most passionate candidate tends to win. Bernie Sanders was running sort of as a protest candidate in 2016. And I think it was his 
very strong performance in Iowa. He almost beat Hillary Clinton. That sort of got a lot of people in the progressive wing in the Democratic Party thinking that he was a he was a viable candidate. And that's why he's running a much stronger, more organization-based campaign this time. There is this tendency, though, to sort of over-romanticize retail politics. I mean, when I was covering the 2008 election in the Midwest, when you went around to different you know, high school gyms or the local town hall or whatever it might be, there was this certain electricity when you saw Barack Obama speaking and you could tell that something special was happening. And I don't want to diminish the importance of that. And And he was able to replicate that type of electricity on a national scale, which is part of what helped him secure the nomination. And of course, he won one Iowa was this big upset in 2008. On the other hand, there is just something strange and fundamentally undemocratic about the process, right? So last time in 2016, it was less than 200,000 people who participated in the Democratic caucus in Iowa. For context, you know, the population of Brooklyn, New York is 15 times that. And there's this question about whether the person who wins in Iowa has the same skills as the person who can carry off a national campaign. And there's just the question of whether Iowa should have so much importance in this broader, supposedly democratic process. I think also there's a lot of romanticism about the idea that there's Jimmy Carter going around farm to farm, shaking hands with farmers, leaving handwritten messages on their gates. But actually, a lot of what's going on in Iowa is old fashioned wholesale politics. So you look at how much money is being spent on TV ads in, in Iowa right now. It's already $42 million just for Iowa. And the most successful candidates are the ones that are spending the most money in Iowa. So it, it doesn't come down just to this sort of romantic idea that you look into the eyes of the candidate and you know what's going on. Mayor Pete is up there spending over $6 million. Sanders around $6 million. Biden's up at $3 million. This is a lot of money for a tiny little state. And then you have to have the money to pay your organizers, to get your volunteers bust from place to place. Some of this is not really about the romance. It's about the muscle. There is a lot of money in Iowa. That said, I'm fully sold on the romance of the whole thing, having spent a few days talking to voters there. Adam and I were in Independence, a town of 6,000 people. Independence had had Bill de Blasio, Beto O'Rourke and Joe Biden at their 4th of July parade last year. I mean, it's completely absurd. On the other hand, the voters who you talk to are incredibly well-informed and are really thinking hard about which candidate might be the one who could go on to beat Donald Trump. I mean, that was the conversation that I had repeatedly with so many people. And it was amazing. It's probably the only time I've talked to a lot of voters who've all had deep knowledge of not just what's in the polls, but once you break down the polls into demographic groups, you know, who does better with African-Americans, who does better you know, in the Midwest and so forth. So Iowans take this really seriously. You know, it's not a system that you would invent from scratch, but given that it exists, I think it's not bad. I'd say one more thing, which is that the opposite of retail politics is even more Tom Steyer adverts on the TV. You know, you cannot move in Iowa. You cannot open a web browser without being bombarded with a Tom Steyer advert. So that is what you'd get if you got rid of the retail politics. So, you know, it's a bit of a crazy system. Um, African-Americans in particular feel that their voices don't get heard. That said, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it, but we do have to remind ourselves it's it's 15% of the population that's so motivated to look into the eyes of the candidates. So it's not the bulk. Can I be Oscar the Grouch here? You're absolutely right to sort of appreciate the romanticism of how Iowa works, but I think we were right that it should be consigned to obscurity. I think that putting Iowa and New Hampshire first in every presidential race is nuts. 
I agree that Iowans are unusually well informed, but there's no reason that a critical mass of people from Louisiana or Oregon or Maine or any other state wouldn't muster up the same sense of civic responsibility. So I think some people have suggested rotating which states come first. I think that's a very, very good idea. There's also this point that Mike Bloomberg, who, of course, is not campaigning at all in Iowa, makes, which is that there are certain states that are very important to the general election, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, where President Trump just has the state to himself. He can go there and make speeches, et cetera, because Democrats are focused on campaigning in places like New Hampshire, where they have no chance of winning the general. And so if Democrats had their own self-interest at heart, they'd be spending more time in states that are actually crucial to winning the White House in 2020. Although you could also argue that Iowa is quite good at picking a candidate who will also shine rather well in the rest of the Midwest. So if you're going to do well in Iowa you probably will do pretty well in Wisconsin and Michigan and the rest of this region as well. So at least Iowa is in the right bit of the country. I'd argue you should be spending your time in Michigan. I wanted to ask Fasman. we've talked about the TV ads, we've talked about the knocking on doors and speaking with voters at parades and so forth. One of the things that's been really interesting in the past decade is the way campaigns have married historic grassroots campaigning with modern digital campaigning. And so what is sort of the digital version of grassroots in Iowa in 2020? It's Burn, the uh, the Bernie Sanders app that his organizers and fans use to keep track of what's going on, on on their phone. It helps them organize. It shows them sort of where to go and phone bank. At the house party that I went to in Forest City up in northern Iowa, it was a way for volunteers to introduce themselves to each other, but they were also being trained on the campaign apps to do digital campaigning. Fasman, and what about Elizabeth Warren? She was someone who seemed to be surging ahead earlier in 2019. She's had a bit more trouble lately. What's been her reception in Iowa? I saw a rally with her at a large venue in Cedar Rapids, and it was packed and enthusiastic. I suspect that she could end up doing better than polls indicate. She also seems to have a strong base of support, if not quite as large as Bernie's, but she's also acceptable to a lot more of the party than Bernie is. So I would imagine that as candidates dropped out because they failed to reach the viability threshold, she will pick some up from there. As far as digital campaigning for Warren, it seems 100% selfie-based. She is famous for taking selfies with anyone who would like one with her. The Cedar Rapids event ended with an extremely long selfie line at which she was just, just tireless. And so that's another aspect of digital campaigning that she does very well. Thanks, everyone. We'll look ahead to what we might be able to glean from the final Iowa polls in just a moment. Fadsman, before we do that, what is the best and the worst thing you've eaten while you've been on the road in Iowa? Because we have a little WhatsApp group between us and we've been swapping pictures of places we've been. The best thing I've eaten, I had lunch at the house of a Democratic Party chair in Mitchell County, which is near the Minnesota border and precisely nothing else. And he made me a wonderful Spam risotto. His dad worked in the Spam factory. And so it was surprising. I'd never eaten Spam in that fashion before, but it was great. I'm not going to ask you what the worst thing was. This is Checks and Balance from Economist Radio. This week, we're in the Midwest, asking how much Iowa matters on the road to winning the White House. You can read all The Economist's election coverage, along with everything else the newspaper has to offer, by subscribing. There's a beautiful obituary of Kobe Bryant this week and lots of other good stuff. Head to economist.com slash pod2020 to receive 12 issues, $12 or £12. That link again, economist.com slash pod2020. Pod2020. 
One thing that makes Iowa so fascinating is how unpredictable the contest can be, and that's certainly the case this time. Elliot Morris is a data journalist for The Economist. He's been looking at the polls for us, and it's looking wide open. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, at least in The Economist's averaging, look to be just above the 20 percentage point mark. Uh, Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg are a little behind that, between 15 and 20 percentage points, depending on our predictive margin of error. Um, And the rest of the candidates are really below 15 percent. In past primaries, the margin of error for the polling average on Iowa on the day that people vote is about 10 percentage points. Uh, So we shouldn't rule out a big surprise. I would characterize the race, if I could, as the shrugging emoji, where that guy has his hands up above his shoulders, a really uncertain fellow. Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg really do need a victory in Iowa. They frankly aren't doing so great in our polling average of states that follow Iowa, places like Nevada and South Carolina, where a more non-white electorate uh, is more inclined to candidates like Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. So if Warren and Buttigieg don't win in Iowa, they might not get the boost that their campaign crucially needs. But a victory in Iowa might come off the backs of working class whites or Midwestern white non-college voters. Um, And these voters are crucial to the Democrats' electability concerns in the general election. These states are the ones that flipped from Obama to Trump in 2016. So they're ground zero for the 2020 November election. I think it's worth trying to paint a picture of where these Obama-Trump counties are, because not only are they in Iowa, they're in Illinois, in Wisconsin, some of them in Minnesota. There's about 30 counties that are really striking how they switch from Obama to Trump between 28 and, and 2016. And they're all along the Mississippi River. There's a really dense cluster of them. Uh, these are formerly industrial areas. They were good at shipping out grain from the heartland, putting them on boats, getting them down the rivers. They had factories. They were actually thriving little towns, places like Keokuk and Clinton, these places right on the Mississippi River. And they are now dead. There's nothing much to do there. You go around through these counties, and other than the farms, a lot of those little towns, those factories are closed down. And they, they are the sort of rust belt bits of the Midwest that were really struggling. We've all heard about the Detroits and the Milwaukees, but these little places on the Mississippi were really angry about their economic downturn. And so was it the case, Adam, that they, they hoped that Obama, after the recession, would be able to reinvigorate them and they just haven't seen the results and that anger poured out in 2016? Yeah, I think anger is the right word. I think there was a sort of resentment of the establishment. There was a sense that they'd been left behind by the flourishing coastal elite and the cities were on the coast were doing very well and they were forgotten. And Obama was seen as an outsider, a voice who would champion them, who would speak up for the forgotten. And of course, it was in the middle of the economic downturn. And something of an aberration then to vote for Obama and their anger continued. And I think they then looked for the next most uh, strident voice who would sort of speak up for the forgotten masses out there. And it was obviously Trump. And I think this time around, they're much more likely to switch to the next angry person. And that's going to be Bernie Sanders, pretty obviously. It's not going to be your reassuring old Joe who's comfortable about saying, let's go back to how things were. It's going to be to someone who says, yes, I do feel your pain. And I can see there's a problem to be fixed. Does that mean that Biden's just toast in Iowa and 
Bernie will win? What's What do you think, Prito? Well, he may be toast in Iowa. It's certainly true that a Biden stump speech has been medically proven as a cure for insomnia and, and approved for use by the FDA. However, I would say John Fassman was knocking boring candidates earlier. There's something really good to being a, a somewhat boring candidate because there's a ton of political science that shows that the most motivating force in politics is not love for your own side. It's, it's hatred and disgust at the other side. And so having a candidate who doesn't elicit that kind of allergic reaction among Republicans would actually be a very good thing for the Democrats. I think John is right that there's a certain sort of steady reassuringness to Biden's candidacy and his persona. I saw him last night in Council Bluffs. The, the room was much smaller than Warren's room, which surprised me. Um, and the crowd tended to be, the, 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 the crowd was on, on the whole somewhat older than Warren's crowd and, and, and more male. And Biden, as he tends to do, sort of ambled and meandered and was discursive, but he also connected with people very well. The crowd was responsive. And I think that in this election in particular, there is something to be said for a less exciting candidate that implied in that sort of steadiness is a, is a return to a, to a steady non-newsmaking presidency. Uh, the one thing to, to bear in mind about Iowa this time, too, is that because of the new rules, there could be multiple ways to spin Monday's results. And this is something that Liz Lenz, the columnist, and I were talking about after Warren's rally on Sunday. With the new caucus rules, there are going to be three counts coming out of the caucus, which means three ways the vote or the alignments are going to be totaled. And the first one is the first alignment, which is when people go into caucus, you get into groups for your candidate. And then you get a chance to realign. The second vote will also count. And there are these new presidential preference cards. We can't call them ballots because the New Hampshire would get all upset at us because they're the first primary. So we have to call them presidential preference cards. Those will be official vote counts. So the first alignment, the second alignment, and then the official delegate count. In a tight, tight race as it is now, you could come out of this with three people claiming three separate victories. And I think it's also possible you could get a lot of people caucusing undecided. That could be a viable group. That undecided guy, he could do well. I think undecided is a white man. <laughs> so wait, can you caucus for undecided? You absolutely can. And the year Jimmy Carter won the caucuses, he actually was beaten by undecided. So Last words, I cannot feel my legs right now. You're not wearing a coat. Are you dumb? You think you're hardier than an Iowan? <laughs> Sorry to insult you on your podcast. That's fine. Thank you. Well, John Fasman, I hope you now do have feeling in your legs again. Um, did you pick up anything about impeachment when you were traveling around? Are people thinking about that, talking about that? I did not have a single conversation about impeachment with a single voter. And I just want to make sure that that does not mean that impeachment is not important from a sort of legal and constitutional perspective. But what was happening in Washington did not register, was not registering here at all. Yeah, yeah. Adam Chuan-Lupin. I agree with, with John Fasman there that every rally I've been to, every candidate I've heard in Iowa over the last few months, they don't bring up impeachment in any detail at all. Mayor Pete has a good line in saying, let's end the madness, let's turn the page and not have any more of this high blood pressure stuff that's going on in D.C. Let's get back to you know, doing the business of, of governing. But it's sort of implicit. He doesn't talk in detail about impeachment. He understands that the crowd wants to move on. I have a, a question. Who is the Des Moines Register endorsed? Warren. Warren's done pretty well on endorsements. I mean, not, not just the 
freaky New York Times double-headed endorsement, but she's done well with some Iowa papers. Yeah, she picks up the local papers too, yeah. Hmm. It's interesting that that hasn't translated remotely into support on the ground for her. The world would be a better place if people just read what they read in the newspaper and acted accordingly, but it doesn't seem to work that way. All right, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, Adam, for being here. Charlotte and John will be back next week. John, where are you going to be? I'm going to be in New Hampshire next week. All right, you're going to take a coat or are you going to brave it manfully uh, just in a pair of jeans and a T-shirt? Yes, this time I will take a coat and wear it when I go out of doors. Thermal underwear, John, thermal underwear. (laughs) Thermal underwear is the secret of the Midwest correspondent I've discovered this week. That and being able to eat while driving. The innovations that help you drive and be a reporter in the Midwest while running from meeting to meeting are really great. My favorite when I was based in the Midwest was macaroni and cheese that had then been breaded into little balls so you could eat it with one hand while driving with the other. I thought that was really a leap forward in American technology. Oh, that sounds so good. Before you guys go, I've got a little quiz for you, and I know you enjoy this. I'm going to go easy on you this week. The archive is from Living Memory from 1998. And, of course, it's about Iowa. That summer, The Economist correspondent visited the Iowa State Fair and was particularly impressed by a 500-pound sculpture. What was that sculpture butter. of? Butter. Got to be made of butter. Uh, yeah, You're made of butter. Was it, was it a cow? It was a cow. You've all aced this. Um, have you all been to the Iowa State Fair? I've been. Yes. I've not of been. Of course. Yes, and I, I saw the butter sculpture room. Okay, so three out of four of us have been to Iowa State Fair and seen the sculpture. So this quiz was too easy, frankly. But you correspondents may not know that a butter cow has been sculpted at the State Fair every year since 1911. Along with the cow, there's always a companion sculpture um, each year. There have been butter versions of John Wayne, Tiger Woods, and also Britain's own Harry Potter. As a lactose intolerant person, I find the butter sculptures to be a microaggression. <laughs> Don, do you have any views on, on avocados, John? I think you've got some strong views on those too. <laughs> Let's, uh, let's table that to California's primary. Excellent. For listeners who are a bit puzzled by that, John Fasman is one of the um, fiercest opponents of the avocado in all of America, but that's for another show. Please don't forget to subscribe to Checks and Balance on your podcast app and give us a rating. It really helps. It matters. Adam, how many stars did you give us? Five out of five. Thank you very much. That's the correct answer. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Charlotte. Thanks, John. That's all from us. More Checks and Balance next week.